0: Hello, and welcome to the Jacobite Podcast. Episode 21, Preston Pans. I thought I'd start this week by stating that uh, with things getting a bit busier in everyone's lives now, it's obviously taking me a bit longer to get these episodes going, but I don't want to ever release a shoddy product. So uh, if there are delays of more than a week or two between episodes, I'm sorry about that. But... I'll be writing them as I go. In the meantime, thank you all for staying, reaching nearly 9,000 plays total, which is frankly unbelievable for me. And uh, we will go from there, and I'm going to take you through the Jacobite campaign from now on. So, we'll start this week's episode on the Jacobites at the Battle of Prestonpans. The Jacobites won. Tune in next week for when we move south. To take England. Alright, alright, I'm, I'm joking, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. But just so that you're aware, my episode explaining Preston Pans is probably going to take longer than the Battle of Preston Pans itself. When we left off, Sir John Cope, commander of the government forces, had landed at Dunbar, just 30 miles from Edinburgh. He was bringing with him around 2,200 troops in total linked up with Captain Thomas Folk and his cavalry. The key to Cope's attempt to fight back was to sweep towards Edinburgh quickly. Based on the knowledge he'd received, the Jacobite army wasn't particularly sizeable nor well-equipped. Indeed, some reports came from government supporters and agents that stated the Jacobite army was armed with a few muskets with varying degrees of quality, broadswords, parges, dirks, a few ancient lockaber axes and some literally armed with just clubs and pitchforks. Scottish secretary, the Marquis of Tweedale, had been saying that the rebellion was small and easily defeatable, but Tweedale's intel massively underestimated the size and support of Charles's army. Charles was said to have reacted to the news that Cope and his troops landed by saying, is he, by God? It was clear to the Jacobites they were going to have to face the government army in order to secure everything they had already gained in Scotland as being beaten now potentially undo all of the hard work to that point. Charles gathered his army at Duddingston. In most of the accounts given before the battle, Charles took his sword from the scabbard and turned to the troops, stating he did not intend to replace it until his people were happy and free, and presumably also under the rule of the House of Stuart. His men marched towards Dunbar to face the government force. Sir John Cope, meanwhile, had his troops marching towards Haddington, intent on removing the Jacobites' threat and regaining Scotland's capital from rebel forces. Cope had set himself near Trenent, on the coast of the Firth of Forth, having spent the night in Haddington, though all was not necessarily going well. The government troops were mostly raw, untrained recruits who were caught talking to the locals. Alexander Carlyle, a recruit who volunteered to serve with the British Army, expressed incredulity, the soldiers were allowed to converse so freely with the locals, whom he all suspected were Jacobite sympathisers, and claimed were trying to, in my own unique historical analysis, frighten the living bejesus out of the troops and demoralise them with stories of the highland forces, marching ferociously through with their wild hair and ragtag tartan garb. Adding to that was the report that the Jacobite army had made it to Musselburgh and was advancing to meet cope with increasing speed. The pace was so rapid it did take Cope a little by surprise. Given that he was aiming to occupy the high ground, Cope instead moved north to a field with marsh on its borders between Seton and Preston. The location itself wasn't terrible, given that the flanks were well protected by water to their right and walled enclosures to the left, as well as a boggy marsh to their front. Cope could well have been confident this would nullify the greatest tactic of the Jacobites, the classic Highland Charge given that the charging force would instantly be bogged down, quite literally in this instance, while government troops rained fire upon them. Another advantage Cope had, of course, was the dragoons. The armed soldiers on horseback could be deployed as the equivalent of a modern mobile infantry unit. The Jacobites didn't have units like this, so it's probably fair to say that Cope felt the army was a bit more mobile and a bit better equipped than this ragtag group of rebels. Cope could envision his men would take the day easily and handle the fight without much of a problem. If Cope could have seen to the Jacobite camp, he might have felt even more confident that victory was his. The Jacobites had rode up to see the government forces and despite shouting taunts and enticements, no fight took place and both sides encamped for the night. Back at camp, two large fights broke out. The MacDonald clan were angry at the battle formation being proposed as they were being denied their traditional position on the tip of the right flank. This was now threatened by the fact that Charles instituted the drawing of lots to define positions, but the Macdonalds drew the left flank, and the Camerons and the Stuarts of Appin drew the right flank. The Macdonalds were very vocal, and they demanded to be restored to their rightful place. Cameron of Lochiel compromised by offering the Macdonalds his space if there was no action the next day, which temporarily diffused this situation, but the argument would happen again in the future, with far graver consequences later on. The second fight of the evening was between Prince Charles and Lord George Murray. Charles, in his position as overall commander of the Jacobite forces, had sent some of Murray's Atoll Brigade to try and cut off any potential escape route for Cope, who could slip around the Jacobite forces and make a beeline for Edinburgh. Now, some have said that perhaps O'Sullivan or Sheridan, his Irish advisors, had come up with this plan and Charles had gone along with it. Now, if he had, it seemed like a very good idea. You know, you want to cut off your enemy before they make an attack. But because Murray hadn't been consulted in this, it incurred the full wrath of his fury. He scolded Charles, according to O'Sullivan, lecturing him like a schoolmaster would a pupil. And he threw his gun to the ground, announcing for the prince he would not hold arms for the cause unless his troops were immediately turned around and ordered back to camp. Now, O'Sullivan and Murray didn't get along, so O'Sullivan's account might not be entirely accurate. But, given that in other portrayals Murray has a reputation for arrogance, a bad temper, and acting better than a lot of other people, I can see he may have forgotten himself and chosen to reprimand the man he held as the Prince of Wales and Jacobite regent. Lockheel claimed Murray then returned to his senses after the Prince had ordered their return, advising the Atholge be deployed as planned, but that wasn't followed. Murray's outburst showed a fracture between Murray and his Prince, which his rivals would exploit, and would be much the detriment of Jacobite forces overall. As Highland soldiers bedded down in the fields in their plaids, and Cope's men set up fires and posted sentries, Charles called a war council, and proposed an attack in the early hours before the dawn. What happened next is debated between Lord George Murray and everybody else. There emerged a conversation where a local hunting trail was discussed. Lord George and John Hume say he brought it up, but everyone else says it was a local landowner by the name of Robert Anderson. I'm inclined to believe in this case it was Anderson. He had come to Charles stating that the local hunting trails went through woodland near the marshes and would help bypass that potentially boggy bit of land and help the Jacobites flank Cope's army. Better yet cope hadn't even placed any guards or sentries on the road leaving it wide open this decision was a particularly hard one to comprehend given that colonel james gardner a dragoon commander in cope's army owned land in the area and he doubtless would have known about the trail in question so cope either had no idea of that trail or he did and he paid it no further mind be it bad intelligence or sheer incompetence this decision would prove disastrous the jacobites pounced on it Setting out in the hours before dawn along the track, the Duke of Perth and Lord George Murray were in the vanguard, followed by a second group comprising of troops led by Charles and Captain James Johnston, later known to history from his memoirs as the Chevalier de Johnston. Murray and Perth emerged from the woods, forming battle lines. Johnston relays the story that the prince stumbled crossing the ditch that led to the fields, and with that stumble went some of his confidence. With others, the prince tended to foresee this as a bad omen, His Jacobite army nonetheless lined up and readied their muskets when a government sentry spotted the Jacobite force and sounded an alarm gun. As the government forces were roused and Cope began to line his men up, the Jacobites launched their assault. Firing their muskets, they concentrated their fire on the dragoons and their horses before dropping the guns and brandishing their hand weapons charged upon the enemy in the classic Highland style. Much like Kilikaranki in 1689, this tactic was devastatingly effective in 1745 the government forces were thrown into complete disarray the dragoons under fire from the jacobites fled the field and their commander james gardner tried in vain to rally them and was mortally wounded musket balls hitting him and then his biographer philip doddridge giving the detail of being pulled from a horse slashed in the arm and scythe and struck by another soldier armed with a broadsword or a lockaber axe gardner was taken from the field dying hours later in a church nearby. In Doddridge's account, the Jacobite troops then entered Gardner's property, looting anything of value. Sir John Cope's artillery fared little better. All the admittedly terrifying sight of a full Highland charge, the artillery bolted, leaving their officers to man the cannons. They tried to rally and fire them, but with the enemy 200 yards and closing, they didn't get very many shots off, but at least one blast woke up the volunteer Alexander Carlyle who dashed to the field from his father's home to see British army troops running down the lanes. They were trying to turn their coats inside out to show surrender while Jacobite troops pursued and shot several in the back trying to flee. Carlyle reported seeing 200 dead British government troops and Jacobite forces stripping them of arms and valuables. The Jacobites had won a brutal swift victory Neutralising the bulk of government forces in Scotland, leaving them in control of most of the territory, bar the fortress castles of Stirling, Edinburgh and Forts George, William, Augustus and Riven Barracks. This dramatic upset, at least on paper, stunned the Hanoverian loyalists and was an absolute propaganda coup for the Jacobites. Stories of officers being cut down, written off as propaganda. Other less savoury accounts depict Charles laughing at the dead, wishing more had been killed. Jacobites were quick to state Charles was extremely concerned with the state of prisoners and expressed some regret that Hanoverian troops, who he still considered his subjects, albeit misguided ones, had had to be killed to make the point. Preston Pans marks the decisive and needed Jacobite victory. It showed how the government in London had massively underestimated how capable they would be and it let them come within 200 yards of the front lines. John Cope claimed later to the marks of Tweedale, Secretary of State for Scotland, He'd done nothing wrong, the Jacobites had just swarmed and the British troops had run in a panic. In defence of Cope, he couldn't be held responsible for everyone legging it at the sight of a Highland charge, but he is at fault for not surveying his land and missing the giant path that was handily used to flank his position, as well as not conducting his own reconnaissance missions to see what the situation was really about, as opposed to waiting on the late, delayed and often flawed intelligence. Charles, on the other hand, was in a position to massively capitalise. Believe me when I say he was fully prepared to do so. He spent the night after the battle at the Marquis of Tweedale's house, as if to metaphorically rub salt in the wound in London. Charles could afford to take a great deal of pride in his forces. He lost 30 men dead and roughly 70 wounded, compared to at least 300 dead in Cope's forces and almost double that taken prisoner. Charles wrote a letter to be sent back to Rome to his father, King James, stating that God was shining on the Jacobite cause, not only allowing him to take Edinburgh without a shot, and there was little to no loss of Jacobite life at Prestonpans. He then wrote of the victorious commander. He wanted to run the enemy all the way to the borders, but his enthusiasm was tempered with a sadness. Despite opposing the Jacobites, Charles was keenly aware the government men were their subjects, albeit misled by Hanoverian usurpers. It might have been that not only spurred Charles to show regret, he may have also wanted to show mercy, ordering all their prisoners to be well cared for. The day after the victory, the Jacobites marched back to Edinburgh in triumph, carrying swords, arms, cannon and regimental colours taken from the government forces. The Jacobite pipers played when the king enjoys his own again, as they and their prisoners came back to the capital to the jubilation of their supporters and the dismay of the hanoverian detractors the jacobites sought to begin to lay the foundations of an administration but it was made all the more complicated by introducing prisoners many of the government's officers had already been paroled as charles wanted to show the jacobites far from the uncaring savages propagandists had argued were instead civilized men who acted in society's norms but while many of the officers were freed in an attempt to convince people of the rightness of the Jacobite regime, most of the rank and file could be held at either the old toll booth or the Cannon Gate Kirk. And whilst the win was a propaganda coup, a huge haul of prisoners of war would stretch Jacobite resources, which were already pretty stretched as it was maintaining their own force. This was a clear and present issue, but would become far more apparent and hazardous as the campaign wore on. But for now. Charles was going to allow his men the opportunity to revel in victory. A public pronouncement was made on September 23rd, later republished in the Caledonian Mercury. This announcement, which reveled in defeating the forces of the usurpers and mourned the deaths of British subjects in equal measure, Charles, in what his supporters declared was an attempt at reconciliation, had ordered no public celebration be taken for their win, but rather that thanks be given to God for a Jacobite victory. This reconciliation, however, may have had more to do with the fact that the garrison stationed at Edinburgh Castle had threatened to fire on Jacobite positions within the capital. The garrison had sealed the gates and refused to surrender to Jacobite forces. The British army there, taking the occasional pot shot at Jacobite patrols, had also managed to take the arms that citizens had surrendered to them rather than give them to the Jacobites. They continually skirmished with Charles's forces who would attack government supply trains on the way to the castle. And Despite being besieged, the castle had way more firepower and protection than Charles's forces. And as I say, contrary to their orders, many people chose to give their guns to the castle, so they weren't exactly running out of bullets. The Jacobites also managed to incur the chagrin of the locals around Prestonpans. The Jacobite propaganda machine referred to the crushing victory as the Battle of Gladsmuir. This evoked, to those in the know, the words of Thomas the Rhymer, a semi-mythical historical figure known for his prophecy, the line of which starts, On Gladsmure shall the battle be, which was very nearly the title of this episode. The implication, of course, being that the battle and its subsequent victory were foreseen, and that therefore Jacobite victory was on the cards. There was one major problem with this, of course, and that was that the battle took place at Prestonpans, and is close, but it's two miles away from the field. Prestonpans, or Trenint, were closer Three, two, one, and they could easily have had a better claim to have the name. The residents at Prestonpans even filed a petition with the Scots magazine, which is one of the oldest publications still in print. The residents complained that battles were named after their locations, It would mark that place in history. It was an objective point in fact. It wasn't subject to the whims of Prince Charles, King George or anyone else. As we know from our timeline, the residents won out. But it's interesting to briefly touch on the attempt by the Jacobites to control the narrative at that point. Charles would further attempt to show he was the ruler of all people by publishing a new proclamation on September 25th in which the Jacobite prince regent acknowledges that people had taken up arms and formed resistance groups to the Jacobites. With Prestonpans wrecking any group's hopes the army would liberate them, Charles ordered no reprisals be taken against them, instead announcing a 20-day amnesty, where if men arrived at Holyrood House and declared their desire to stay out of the fight, no further action would be taken. Alexander Carlyle made his way to Edinburgh, setting his eyes on the palace and seeing the prince, whom he described as sunburnt, freckled, with red hair and black eyes. Carlyle had said around 400 people were also there in attendance with him, and once he'd seen them, declared his amnesty and satisfied his curiosity, he went home. Carlyle later became a minister in Inveresk and became a moderator in the Church of Scotland in his later life. Following the pronouncements, Charles began to settle into a daily routine. According to O'Sullivan, Charles would awake early, before daylight, and would start to issue orders, write correspondence, and read other letters before meeting with his military officers and ministers. These meetings were described by Lord Elko, later as fairly dysfunctional, with Charles coming to the men like an all-commanding generalissimo, stating what he told the group he thought should happen, and then asking their opinions, many of whom, not wishing to upset or incur the wrath of Prince Charles, they would then mostly go along with him, become sort of meek yes-men, and tell him what he wanted to hear. Now, Elko, like George Murray, they later wrote things in order to try and distance themselves from what was to come. It could also be said that this was down to what uh, was seen as Charles's favourites within the Irish Jacobite faction. He would listen more to men like Sheridan and O'Sullivan, He took their opinions and gave them more weight. This would irk men like Elko and Murray, uh, was often the fact that the Irish would curry favour with the Prince and maintain that the goal was to seize all of Britain, whereas the Scottish Jacobites felt it was currently them putting their necks on the line, and frankly a lot of them were more interested in just taking control of Scotland and securing it in order to dissolve the Act of Union. Wait for the French recognition before they then mounted the great campaign because a lot of them felt, still, even with Charles's victory, that the only way to guarantee the total domination of the Hanoverians was with French support. Others, such as James Maxwell, however, had said that the council was effective. It would only be as effective as its members, however, and that infighting between the groups was causing the damage to the Jacobites. After these meetings, whatever their outcome, Charles would publicly dine, echoing his relatives in France. At one of these, Charles was said when he succeeded to the throne, Scotland would be his Hanover and Holyrood his Herrenhausen, referencing the King George and his constant trips abroad. This would imply Charles would be more hands on with Scotland, but the comment clearly kind of demonstrates his desire that it would be to take England as well, kind of adopting a James I, Charles I, almost Jacobean type of I-will-rule-from-London and pop-up-to-Scotland occasionally. Charles would then ride to Duddingston to review his army and see their training regimen from his command tent. He'd then return to the palace in the evening, take supper and host audiences, especially for many of the female admirers at the dancing balls held, though Charles's supporters were quick to maintain their prince's chastity, while Hanoverian propagandists were quick to remark otherwise. Some of you who've watched the show Outlander might have been inclined to believe the latter. In October, whilst renewing his battle with the castle, declaring it under siege, Charles received two large boosts to his chances. Lord Forbes of Pitsligo, Balmerino, Kenmure, Kilmarnock, Nisdale, and Ogilvy all arrived, and I'm absolutely sorry if I butchered any of those. Send me a tweet and I'll be happy to clarify. These men then all declared their loyalty to the cause. Even further north in Inverness, the old fox, Lord Lovett's Simon Fraser, still officially wavering, met with known Jacobites and toasted the king over the water, as well as the victory at Prestonpans. After his son marched out with Fraser men, several other Fraser men appear to have gone rogue to try and seize Duncan Forbes, the Lord President of the Scottish Court of Session. Though he fought the attackers off, Forbes wrote to Fraser, who exclaimed shock and dismay, although in all likelihood he probably orchestrated the whole thing. Fraser would return later, but he was preparing to send 700 Fraser men with his son to show not only loyalty and commitment to the Jacobite cause, but plausible deniability as it was his errant son who acted in defiance of him. This as a whole would help not only augment the Jacobite army in numbers, but help the prince maintain legitimacy as it could show the clans that supported him. The second thing that gave Charles a massive boost happened on October 17th. When a ship landed in Montrose bearing a Frenchman by the name of Alexandre de Boyer, the Marquis d'Aiguille. De Boyer was sent by the French court after Antoine Walsh returned to France in August. Walsh relayed that not only had Charles successfully landed, but he had in fact made steady progress. Although Walsh left Scotland before Prestonpans, he had enough progress to report to Louis XV. This was a serious attempt and that perhaps with a more robust French support, the Jacobites could mount a credible, possibly successful campaign to claim the British throne. France was clearly sold on this idea, so they sent de Boyer as the de facto French ambassador to the Jacobite court, along with a small amount of arms and money. De Boyer also relayed to the Jacobites that Louis had hired Irish privateers to ferry more men, more guns, and more equipment to Scotland to support the Jacobites. With all of this, Charles must have felt confident and ready to build on his victory at Prestonpans. He decided to consult his council about making plans to march south to invade England. The ultimate goal, the course being to seize the crown for his father, King James. The reaction to all of this in England, and London specifically, was somewhere between despair and anger. In the London magazine, the Archbishop of York bewailed that the son of the pretender had control of Scotland and was heading to England as anyone could see former Prime Minister Walpole had written warning if there was no opposition, the Jacobites would soon do as they wished. Once Prestonpans and the news of its defeat hit England, fear and the need to blame someone started. Sir John Cope was held responsible, especially after rumours from Jacobites such as Johnston, who claimed Cope escaped Prestonpans with a white cockade in his hat to a local lord's house, who claimed he was the first general in Europe who had brought tidings of his own defeat. Others considered Cope a bumbling, thick-headed moron. Later on, he was dragged before a court-martial to try and apportion blame. Cope and his two other officers, Folk and Lascelles, were all acquitted, blame instead being put on the numerous non-commissioned ranks. But for Cope, he was pretty much done. He never again held high-ranking command in the British Army. The general public, however, Project Fear went into full swing. Stories of Charles dining amongst the dead in Preston Pans like an infamous woodcut of Vlad the Impaler. Stories of women being stripped and killed at Edinburgh's Mercat Cross. And dozens of other pamphlets detailing atrocities and plots by foreign, and even scarier, Catholic powers to attempt to restore the Catholic Stuarts and a return to absolute monarchy, something few people would accept or stomach. With regards to the British military... They'd lost their Scottish troops and had for a long time feared a French invasion across the channel. With the forts along the east and south coast, the Royal Navy had grown confident in securing this area, but now they had to contend with defending the North Sea and the Scottish coast, which not only stretched defences, it invited either a strengthened Jacobite army to the north, a supporting French invasion from the south, or a mix of both. It became imperative to defend Britain from its Jacobite threats. In Flanders' fields, William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland, had been receiving letters from England detailing what was going on. Despite seeing what was happening in Scotland as taking him away from the real fight in Europe, he nonetheless decided to put in place a contingency plan to ready ships and ten battalions to be returned as soon as the winds changed. These plans were hastened upon the arrival in London of Sir John Ligonier. In a letter dated September 24th, Ligonier informed Cumberland of Cope's defeat, as well as echoing that whilst the troops Cumberland sent were a calming influence on the streets of the capital, offering some protection, they were in no way enough to defeat the Jacobites, and therefore, regrettably, the Duke would have to end his campaign in Flanders and return to defend Britain at the winter season. With other letters extolling that Charles was convening a parliament in Edinburgh, repealing the Act of Union with England, renewing the old alliance with France and mounting a now certain invasion of England to restore the House of Stuart, English people, Lord Harrington wrote, were demanding their deposits, which was creating a run on the Bank of England, and therefore people wanted an army to protect them and their money. It remains a historical what-if as to whether the government really needed to send 12,000 troops back to try and beat the Jacobites, but it might have been a case of making up for a frankly awful defence at this point. By October 18th, Cumberland was back in London and ready to face Charles in the field. Next time, we will see what happens when the government and Jacobite forces ready themselves as the government prepares to save the Hanoverian crown and the Jacobites prepare to take England.